Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Teams at Work, a podcast for the new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or company to learn about their journey and get actionable tips along the way. I'm your host, my name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bunch. My team and I are on a mission to help all managers become great leaders. We're building an AI leadership coach to help you become a world-class leader with as little time invest as two minutes a day. Before we kick it off today, don't forget to subscribe as we're always having super interesting guests come and join us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Teams at Work podcast. Today, we have a super special guest with us, Carl Alomar from M13. Hi, Carl. Hey, Daria. How are you? I'm really good. I'm super happy to have you with us today. I'm super happy to be with you today. That's awesome. Um, just for kind of like a bit of context, Carl has an amazing entrepreneurial journey um, that he is uh, sharing with so many founders right now, being an investor in, in companies. So Carl, you actually started out um, in the fintech uh, sector and you've built two companies so far and joined DigitalOcean as a COO and kind of like scaled that company from a small startup to the business that it is today, uh, competing with one of the biggest companies worldwide. Um, how did you decide to actually kind of turn tables and join AM13, which is uh, a venture fund based out of LA and New York? Um, as I know you're such a passionate entrepreneur by heart and, and, and an operator, what drove you to actually kind of switch sides? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, so in my entrepreneurial journey, um, especially in the later stages of that journey, I have actually, you know, mentored, made small investments of my own, you know, worked with a lot of different founders and different teams and, and just kind of provided a little bit more of a give back, kind of pay it forward approach towards just helping other people with some of the things I've learned in, in my career. And uh, I really enjoy that. And actually one of the most enjoyable things in my career has been seeing the, the rewards of, of you know, other people getting the benefit of the things that I've learned or some of the experience that I've had in my career. Um, you know, you, you marry that with the fact that, you know, having been through three experiences in total, so two that I started myself in DigitalOcean, mm -hmm. and having been in the trenches for a very significant number of years trying to build these businesses, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's only so much energy a single person can have. And so for me, I feel like uh, I had a choice of going back and, and doing the next business and getting back in the trenches and spending those two, three, four years of building to get to, to something that has a, you know, real value and real meaning. And, yeah. uh, and I weighed that up with the idea of actually being able to work with a wider array of, of, of entrepreneurs and founders and people that just are inspiring and creative, um, and helping them navigate their journeys. And to me, I felt like this is a great time in my career to really take the 20, 25 years of experience I have and just help share it and help, you know, find success, you know, in other people's journeys. And I think that's one of the most fulfilling things that I've, I think I can get out of my career at this point. And for everyone listening, uh, just a bit of kind of insider info, uh, Carl is also on our board at Bunch.ai and provides really, really great support and guidance. So I'm really happy uh, you took that turn in your career and, and being on the on the end of benefiting from it. So yeah. really 
really and good. Known you, I mean, <laughs> this is actually a great example. I've known you for two and a half years. I think we made the investment in Bunch about a year ago. So we knew each other for about a year and a half before uh, yeah. we actually made the investment. And I think it was the experience, you're a part of my journey and the experience that we had where I, you know, we would have periodic conversations every now and then. I, I you know, give you whatever guidance I thought would be helpful. And I think you hopefully found that guidance helpful, but that experience is a part of the greater experience that I, I reference when I say I really, really enjoy seeing founders build creative and incredible businesses. And I believe that's what you guys have done a bunch. It was it was super cool, actually. I'm glad you, you bring it up. Um, I, I remember, I think the first time we've met and for, for everyone out there, so the full story is we actually, um, I think, reached out to DigitalOcean and to you, Carl, um, with, with a piece of content that was actually about strong cultures and how to scale it. And I think it was um, a really great coincidence that you were giving a talk about the topic, how you actually did that at DigitalOcean at that time. And so we got to to chat about this, but I do remember was big, I was traveling to New York. Coincidence, actually, it was a bigger coincidence than that because I actually happened to be giving that talk in Berlin. Indeed, and it yeah. was literally next to our office, so yeah. we were at the family. Like, and we were... I don't know what stars aligned to make this happen, but you know, obviously, it was meant to be. <laughs> that was indeed. I was also. Uh, I'm not a big faith believer otherwise, but at that moment, I was just rolling with it because I was spotting the opportunity. It was like this is so great. So many things align. I need to go with this. And I think I remember when I traveled to New York, um, and we were. We. I mean, we were based in Berlin at that time. Um, I was in New York quite often. Every time I was in New York, um, I think uh, you and the team at Digital Ocean, Matt and Rich, uh, with whom we worked at that time, we. I always reached out to all three of you, and I. I do remember. It was an amazing, mind-blowing opportunity to me to be able to just meet you for half an hour in your office with like the whiteboard and um, sketch out strategic questions and things like that. I think um, having had that opportunity to have these conversations really, um, yeah, forged a lot of the thinking in in our founding team, and I really benefited from it. So, thank you again for doing that back then, and I'm really happy how it all uh, turned out. That's very kind um, of you. Thank you. I think we. The, the topic of uh, today's episode actually um, is um, a less less happy one, but but uh, maybe an optimistic one. Um, I think we're living in a time where we're going for yet another crisis, and um, it's leaders like you that I think will look for advice and and turn towards in these times because you've taken two businesses through a crisis uh, period, uh, once the dot com bubble and then the two thousand eight crisis. And I do want to learn a little bit more about the kind of takeaways you had when going through um, both of these situations. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a of a breakdown what what went down back then, and and um, uh, yeah, more importantly, what can we as founders and leaders uh, for today's situation and today's challenges learn from your experience? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's a big question. So let's let's break it down into its component parts. I think um, the first uh, key thing to understand on the macro level is I have been through crises, two crises. I mean, that's reflective of having a 25-year um, career and basically expecting a crisis every decade. That's the standard mm. cycle of life in in the, in the world that we live in. So mm. 2000, 2008, and now we have 2020, and 10 years from now or in and around 10 years from now, there'll be another one. Uh, and mm -hmm. what I found consistently is that when you're in the middle of the crisis, especially when it's directly affecting you and your business, you feel like everything is changing. The world is collapsing on you. 
um, nothing will ever be the same again. And the reality is that's just not true. Um, mm. Everything does eventually return back to normalcy. Uh, the good part of that is that the world is going to be there, that the world is, you know, the, the underlying trajectory of humanity is not changing drastically as a result of these crises. Mm. The bad news about that is that we don't learn from our, our mistakes. So we've done a lot of things in history that have created major economic or social um you know, crises in our, in our lives. And a few years after those are behind us, we generally have forgotten about them. And then we continue to do those bad things to create the next crisis. So do you, by the way, do you, by the way, see that happening in, in this current uh, situation? Did you see behaviors in the market and kind of tendencies that you think have led to, to the current crisis to happen? Well, I don't, I mean, this crisis is interesting because I think um, the impact is actually from outside rather than 2008, yeah. where the impact is systemic. And even yeah. 2000, it was much more of a systemic impact, where there was actually a, a, a mistake in the way the industry was behaving. The, yeah. the thing that I would say that I would caution is that, and, and I think most people would concur with this, I would hope they do, but you know, the market was booming because we were in such a um, full market for such a long period of time, and valuations were going through the roof, and you know, the reality is I think everybody would agree that there was going to be some kind of a correction um, mm. at some point in the next, you know, measurable period of time. But, yeah. uh, but the reality is, you know, we got impacted by an outside force, which forced that to happen sooner. So I think yeah. the financial adjustments that are taking place today would have happened in one way or another, in one form or another. But the reality is this is slightly different because it is an external force that's forcing mm -hmm. the situation. Mm -hmm. To me, again, that has um, a silver lining. You know, I'm an optimistic person, as you know, Darius, so I always try and look for <laughs> the opportunities and the silver linings. But to me, the silver lining on this is We that, need those now, yeah, I think. <laughs> we, we, I don't think we're going to make any major economic structural changes to the way that the world works um, in terms of, uh, you know, business incentives and, and fundamental, um, you know, fiscal policies. Yeah, um, yeah. Because the adjustment has corrected everything to a point where there's actually room to grow again. Uh, the reality yeah. is the world is on hold. So there is no growth or no expected growth in the short term, at least until people have visibility as to how we're going to get out of this holding and how we're going to get back into real life um yep. and, and that's kind of the unknown that's probably tempering the any expectations or any optimism that's that could be out there in the market for what the future might look like so you mentioned one of the one of the key things is kind of like to keep a calm head to to try to learn from past mistakes and kind of apply things and um it speaks a lot i think against what the tendency is in, in such a situation, what we see a lot of, um, yeah, leaders even, I think, uh, yeah, turn into or, or this, the, the reactions we see from political leadership, but also from business leaders. How do you actually stay calm in this situation? So how do you keep a cool head? And maybe more specifically, um, in those both situations that you went through with your own companies, I think specifically with, um, uh, China Export Finance, you were the CEO, so you kind of are the last in line, right? You're supposed to know what to do now. How did you 
manage to keep a cool head and and um, yeah, what advice can you give to to business leaders today? Yeah, to? I think it's a really tough one because it's so personal. And um, it's very difficult to just say to someone blindly without understanding their nuance, nuanced circumstances, oh, you've got to be calm. But the reality is, I think that's, that is the consistent truth. Like everybody has to assess that in their own world and figure out how they can, how they can maintain calmness. I, I think I was relatively lucky that I generally have a pretty calm demeanor. So it wasn't, it, you know, I'm not a highly emotional person and I, I don't react. Um, aggressively and quickly to to bad situations i always kind of uh, tempered and, and take my time some people are very different some people are naturally very emotional people and it's very difficult for them to process these difficult situations and difficult environments but from a business standpoint uh any action that is taken uh outside of a calm sense of uh, you know sensibility are probably a significant amount of the time wrong and will have negative longer term effects you know knee-jerk reactions basically i'm referring to so yeah. you know looking at a crisis situation saying oh my god we got to do this this and this right now without actually taking your time to think strategically can often yeah. put you know create a whole set of problems that you weren't even expecting and so the one consistent truth is always take a step back always take a breath always look at the macro picture stay calm. Mm. And then with that, the second key theme is be strategic. And when I say mm. be strategic, it's about balancing the idea of offense and defense. Every business is going to have a defensive um, requirement at this time, but a lot of businesses will have a hard time realizing that there is potentially also opportunity. There's potentially also an offensive play. So balancing between how much defense you play, you know, extending your runway, mm. um, you know, uh, protecting your customer base, protecting your mm. supply chain, you know, these things that are more defensive plays, um, there's always going to be a balance to say, like, for example, with China Export Finance, oh my God, the demand side on my business has just gone through the roof. Mm. I, I, you know, I have more demand than I know what to do with. And there are companies even in our portfolio that are experiencing that right now. And their challenge is actually maintaining their supply chain, maintaining their, their you know, service and their ability to grow and, and scale with their customer base. And so they're having a very, very different uh, crisis moment than the people that are, you know, have a completely bare market and are unable to book any revenue at this time. And so even yeah. for those people, there's always going to be something that you have to think about in terms of the balance of defense and offense. And you can't really think about that if you're not calm and strategic. So that, that's kind of the two primary uh, uh, ideals that I think everybody has to live by in these situations. As, as an investor, as a VC, you have a really good, I think, insight into the market coming from like a big picture perspective, right? You see uh, pitch decks running through the pipeline at M13, but also you speak to a lot of founders. Um, what's your take on the current opportunities? Which businesses do you think have more opportunities right now and um, also maybe even ask more specifically, um, how do you spot opportunities? So like what questions shall we ask ourselves as founders, as, an ent as entrepreneurs? How do we actually make sure we don't miss opportunities in, in that yeah, situation? I think, um, I think as an investor, so M13 is open for business. We're talking to founders. We're still looking at businesses for an opportunity to invest. 
I think the bar and the level of the criteria for investment probably is lifted um, because, mm. you know, at this stage, it, yeah, you know, you have to have additional considerations on the, on the longevity of the business or the business's ability to survive in a bear market versus being in a bull market and having, you know, kind of the, the tide of opportunity carry the business with it. Um, so there are additional constraints and there's probably going to be impact on valuations because, you know, with market multiples dropping significantly, you just have a different set of comps. And as a result, you, you may address, you know, the valuations and the expectations of, of, uh, of these, uh, of these founders and these, these young companies. Um, yeah. I also think that, you know, with not every venture firm is going to be open for business right now. Some may be taking much more of a conservative position. So there may be a slightly more restricted amount uh, or availability of capital sources um, than there were before. And so all of these kind of have to be weighed into the way uh, an entrepreneur thinks about how they're going to push market, how they're going to get funding. But and in I terms... I want to maybe I want to follow up on this because I think in in the service of founders uh, who are listening to to the podcast, I think it's really really interesting to understand because I think the majority of VCs actually says we are open for business. We're looking at opportunities. We're still closing deals, um, and I don't. I, I definitely trust that uh, for its vast majority. I think the tricky part is to understand f- from a founder perspective. What does it mean when VCs get more diligent? So, what what yeah. are you looking for more when you look at a business? How do you specifically look for like what what indicators are you looking for in order to yeah. say it's worth investing even right now? Yeah. So, I would um, first of all say that uh, I think there's more proof points needed um, at this mm-hmm. stage in a business. You want to make sure a business has um, you know the proof points to, to demonstrate that they'd have the longevity to work through a bear market. Um, the way that I would break it down, I was kind of trying to think of things in terms of structure. As you think about, you know, the coming months, if not potentially a couple of years, and you say the the world is going to go through three stages. The first stage is Corona, uh, you know, COVID stage, where a lot of, um, you know, what's the current market condition? How are consumers behaving today in this current environment? So as long mm-hmm. as there continues to be a lockdown, continues to be restriction in in um, you know, in real life experience, continues to be restriction in travel. What does the world look like in that scenario? So, uh, stage two is okay, uh, recovery. So, uh, how are people behaving as they are now being permitted to do the things they weren't able to do before? We don't believe that everyone's going to jump straight back into their lives the way they they were, you know, acting uh, pre-crisis. So, there's going to be a a period of time whereby there is you know, a different type of behavior that's taking place. And then strange stage three is what is the new normal mm. a year from now or a year and a half from now when uh, a company, when, uh, sorry, these consumers or these, these customers are now back to their real life, but back to their real life with whatever adjusted behavior uh, or accelerated um, change in behavior has happened uh, in the way that they behave. And mm-hmm. so when we look at businesses now, we're going we're gonna to look at that. You know, we're making five to 10-year investments, but the reality is these companies need to have a story as to how they're dealing in each of those three stages and mm, what, what they're going to do to get back to stage three where they actually realize their true long-term opportunity. Um, some businesses are going to have a harder time and some businesses mm. are actually going to 
you know, take advantage of the unique opportunities. But mm. again, you got to be careful because even the companies that have unique opportunities today, do those unique opportunities still exist at stage three? Yeah. Or do, are yeah. they only temporary? And so you got to be careful. You don't want to make an investment today and then realize a year from now that it's not relevant anymore because outside of lockdown, this business doesn't have the same set of unique opportunities that it did. So there's a, a little bit of, there's definitely some strategy in thinking about how companies navigate through this uh, period yeah. uh, that, that people weren't really thinking about, you know, three months ago. So maybe to just kind of think through an example, I think Zoom is having a great opportunity right now. Obviously, we're all using it um, um, day in, day out, multiple hours a day. Everyone, the whole working environment seems to run on that tool yeah. uh, with a few exceptions. And I think uh, it's super interesting to see that right now, I think what they're really focusing on is kind of like the bare performance features, right? There is barely any UX improvements or anything like that. It's literally just securing bandwidth so everyone can have a call. And I think um, in, in the future, it's interesting to see what the assumptions are that uh, I think Zoom is making around, like definitely more people will be working remotely afterwards, but how many and what they will be looking for and how will they be using remote tools differently than they did before? Um, and it may very well change, right? I think there is um, a lot of surveys on on the topic of uh, how do you like working from home? And I think the vast majority actually is positively surprised. So I uh, read a study yesterday um, where I think 60% of Americans are actually uh, seeing it positively. And then um, I think 20% are kind of like hating it and, and really can't imagine going beyond what's necessary and can't wait to get back to the office. And 20% are kind of like flexible around oh, it's cool to combine, like it's cool to have the flexibility to work from home and, and it's still, the business doesn't go down. It actually works really, really well. So it's really interesting to see how these consumer behaviors will change in the in kind of mid and long term beyond the yeah. surge of need right now. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think I have a, a belief that, um, you know, consumer behavior will change in a certain trajectory and that trajectory over 100 years or more won't change. Um, mm your consumers will continue to evolve and the way that they use products and the way that they behave will continue to evolve, um, you know, consistently forever. Uh, the difference in a moment of crisis to me is that there's just simply an acceleration. It's mm -hmm. not that people take a 90 degree or 180 degree turn in the way that they do things. It's that mm -hmm. the things that they were already trending towards get accelerated. So in this particular scenario, people 10 years ago, couldn't even think of a video call. They were like, why would I ever do a video call? I, I have to put, you know, I have to make myself look good. I have to be presentable, all these things. Like, why would I do that? Today, yeah. video calls are absolutely the norm. Yeah. Uh, remote working as well. 10 years ago, you know, the concept of remote working was unthinkable and people were just slightly starting to experiment with it. But now, you know, people are more and more taking advantage of remote work opportunities. So you take that combination of things and all you're trying, all you're really saying is whereby all of the early adopters had already been using Zoom before yeah. this crisis. Yeah. This crisis has shone a light on a, in a trajectory that, you know, companies are taking anyway and said to the companies that may have traditionally been later adopters, try it now. And if you like it, you may, you may ultimately adopt this, you know, two to five years faster than you would have if there yeah. was no crisis. And I think that's, that's what crises do is they accelerate 
um, a, a trajectory that humanity is already on, and they don't generally change the ultimate course of where everything is going. So if you're really thinking long-term and strategic, uh, you know, your sound investments, as long as they can carry, you know, carry through a bear market and they can survive, will still be sound investments in the next bull market. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's a way to, to think about it. I do have so many questions, but I'm going to go for um, an interesting take on kind of the um, metaphor of Ben Horowitz of wartime and peacetime CEO. Do you, are you familiar with uh, the framework basically where Ben Horowitz is saying there is kind of you, 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 most CEOs or most executives can do both, but you are growing or excelling in, in one or the other. And obviously wartime CEO is someone who kind of like, uh, yeah, nourishes on a crisis. So really, uh, steps up to the challenge. And, and I think these time CEOs are more kind of long-term strategic thinkers, um, from your own experience, where would you see yourself more? And also going through these both crises, like, what did you learn about your way of, of leading? Where would you say? Yeah, I, I know that analogy, obviously, but, uh, I've never actually applied it to myself, which is an interesting <laughs> question. Um, you know, I do think I have somewhat of a balance. I will say peacetime CEO is a lot more fun, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot less, uh, stressful. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, I do think that I, I've had the ability in my career. I think I've demonstrated that in difficult times, I, I'm not scared of stepping up, taking the podium and, and, you know, helping an organization through. So I think I've been very effective, uh, in the wartime environment. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, um, I definitely enjoy peacetime more. I definitely enjoy long-term thinking, strategic planning, kind of working in a steady environment and just building, uh, yeah. that's to me a lot more enjoyable, but, um, I, I do agree. It's too different. It's, it's pretty much a split personality type thing because you definitely have to put on a very different uh, hat and yeah. a very different persona when you're, when you're dealing in wartime. Yeah. And kind of looking back at your wartime experiences um, in, in both crises, um, I think always an interesting question is to look at decision making in these environments, which, um, yeah, is, is faster, uh, typically harder to do, uh, yeah, colored by, by more emotion. And uh, so on, what would you say were key decisions you, you made in, in uh, the dot-com, but also in the 2008 crisis that helped your company? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, very, very different environments for me. Um, at the dot-com boom, I was in my early 20s. It was my first uh, CEO and founding uh, experience. I, I definitely have a lot less experience than I've had subsequently. Um, the, um, you know, the key things we had to... So we were just in brief, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the, at the finish line on a $20 million round of funding, literally signing documents and getting the wire transfer that day. And it got pulled from us on the day that the market crashed, which was the day we were supposed to receive the money. So as you would with wow. any company uh, who's about to raise money, you know, you're two, three months away from running out anyway, because you're about to get a $20 million injection of capital. So we were definitely in a, put in an immediate crisis mode and very difficult situation. Uh, the two main key decisions I had to make, uh, which were very, very difficult, probably, you know, the first one, probably the toughest decision I've ever made in my life was uh, we had to extend runway. We had to let go 30 to 40% of our staff literally within a week. And we had wow. to figure out how to get that done in a humane way and still re retain some level of motivation and excitement and, and 
you know, uh, engagement from the balance of, of uh, co-workers and friends that stayed. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was incredibly tough. Probably the hardest thing I had to go through in my career, to be honest, um, because it's just very personal and it's very personal for every individual that, that is experiencing it on the other end. And how and the old other, was the company? How old was the company at that time? Uh, we, we were established in 97, so it was about three years old. We had 60, mm -hmm. 70 people. I mean, it, we had a decent organization. We had you know, 20, 30 engineers or maybe more than 30 engineers at that point. Mm -hmm. like, it was a, a, you know, a pretty well-established business, but obviously in the dot-com era with an inexperienced CEO, we weren't focused on business model. We, didn't, we hadn't built yeah. a big revenue construct. It was just like build your network as big as you can. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we were building this kind of network of um, this platform and, and we weren't really uh, being conscientious uh, as much as we would be today around profitability, cash flow, and cash flow and all those things. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second major decision there was, what do we do? You know, do we try and reconstitute around? Do we downsize the company and raise less money? Do we sell the company? And ultimately, we were lucky enough uh, within the frame of the bubble to have uh, pretty excited acquirers that wanted to acquire the business and we were able to nail down a deal with one of them and, uh, and actually do a transaction and sell the business. Uh, and then I stuck with it for another year, got a new CEO in and then ultimately moved, moved off and went to do an MBA. But um, those were the two major really critical decisions. I did feel like I was on somewhat of an island with that business because I don't think I had the right support mechanisms Uh, and I definitely didn't have the experience that I needed. Mm. And so it was a lot of just gut reactions and gut thinking and luckily was able to navigate through it. Uh, but it wasn't yeah. easy. 2008 yeah. um, was a di very different scenario. That was an environment where actually our, it was a fintech business. Uh, mm -hmm. So in an environment where finance was suddenly um, you know, unavailable, the world wanted our solution. <laughs> so we were just inundated with demand and that was kind of the real opportunity for us as a business to grow and you know we grew in 2008 from uh 87 million in 2008 i think in in business up to about 137 million in business in 2009 it could have written a wow. lot more if we actually you know had the supply we needed to write that business um and so the major challenges there were really on how do i manage my supply side We were underwritten by AIG, which was obviously a big, uh, you know, uh, risk for us at that time because, you know, they were at risk of going under as well. And that would have pretty kind of uh, completely destroyed our supply side. Um, and then we had a whole syndicate of banks that were all questioning their future in, in debt and their future in where they want to put their money and what they want to do. And so uh, our biggest battle was supply side battle. We didn't have to make any difficult decisions about employees or anything because Uh, we were the demand side was there. Yeah, demand side was there, and we were fundamentally a very strong business from from a uh, cash perspective. It was just we couldn't support growth. So I think the biggest challenge, the biggest decision, ultimately actually came down to an acquisition opportunity again, uh, but mainly centered around the idea of can we live through this um, credit freeze period and come out the other side with now an incredibly uh, expanded portfolio of of customers and, and a highly recognized brand or can we not make it that long and in 2009 as i mentioned we did 137 million in in business and 
the risk was in 2010, we were not going to be able to do more than that. And not because there wasn't demand, just because we couldn't, we couldn't support it. We didn't have the supply side. So making a decision of, you know, what's 2010 going to look like? Are we even going to be able to do the same level of business we did in 2009? And what would, what impact would that have on our trajectory as a company as a whole? Um, was really where we saw the biggest risk. And in that, uh, really made it clear to me that this is the apex of the business right now. There may be a brighter day in years to come, but it's not. It's not in front of us right now. And and so we made a decision to uh, exit that well. business as well at the end, mm-hmm. at the beginning of 2010. I have two two last questions, which I think um, hopefully will reveal a, a lot of even more um, awesome or um, yeah, in learning intensive insights. Um, one is around the kind of lessons learned on the side of how to instill hope in employees when you have to do layoffs and how do you kind of, um, um, yeah, instill confidence, I think. And the other one is more around the strategy. I'm going to go with the strategy first, though, because I think what a lot of founders and, and leaders struggle in, in general, I think, but even more so in the crisis is to be able to think about the next year to be able to think about the the year after um and it's the short-term execution um twist uh, or swirl that kind of always soaks you in right day in day out what are your uh what is your advice or what are your recommendations and kind of like how do you keep yourself um on the strategy level so how do you make sure that you zoom out how do you make bets even about the year Mm -hmm. ahead the 24 months ahead what are your yeah, there. I mean, yeah, you have to have the ability to extract yourself and look at the market as a macro. And, you know, I, I think every entrepreneur has this skill set organically mm-hmm. because that's how they started their business. You know, they were looking at a, a blank piece of paper and saying, there's a market, there's an opportunity. You know, where do I yeah. fill in this piece of paper? I think you got to go back to grassroots and essentially do that again and just say, okay, everything I thought I knew about my consumer, about consumption, about product market fit may have changed. So let me go back and do the same exercise I started with when I started this company and just understand how my consumer is behaving now, how my customer is behaving. And is is that customer behavior going to change the way I think about what I'm offering, You know, what service I'm offering or how I'm offering it? And again, going back to what we talked about before, the three stages of this next... 12 to 24 months you know Mm. how do i navigate through that what is the customer behavior in each one of those three stages and what can i do to take the greatest opportunity or create the greatest potential for my business based on what i know is going to be a changing environment and i love that it's actually a very simple framework that i think every one of us can can really immediately apply is kind of try to think about the now and the next and the later and uh, apply the learnings we already have about crisis, um, kind of trajecting from the shock reaction to the new normal and then start with the consumer behavior. I think it's a super beautiful, simple, simple um, approach and metaphor, which is really, really helpful. So thank you for that. And um, yeah, the, the, I think the hard question, I mean, these decisions never come easy. I think letting people go and layoffs and mm-hmm. um, that part of, of doing business, I think is the most horrible probably um, for everyone, of course, for the employees that are being let go. But Oftentimes, the perspective of the person that has to make the hard decision is um, forgotten. And I think 
many leaders struggle with that right now. I think there's not that much support and that, that much content and kind of knowledge out there being shared about how to make the decision. So what did you, how did you actually decide whom you're going to let go and, and uh, how was this process? And then more importantly, how do you make sure that um, you actually instill confidence in the rest of the crew that you yeah, I mean, deciding who you're going to let go is one of the toughest things you ever have to go through because you have a personal relationship with with everybody, especially when you're a small business. Um, I I think you have to be, it just has to be incredibly pragmatic and you have to take emotion out of the equation. And you just have to pragmatically think about the functions uh, in the business that make sense um, as it relates to the strategic, you know, you know, uh, landscape is sitting right in front of you. So you've done your strategic analysis and now you're saying, okay, what, what do I need to run this business? Does it make sense for me to have a, you know, a large sales organization right now if there's no one to sell to? Does mm-hmm. it make sense for me to have, um, you know, a deep bench on engineering if, uh, my engineering responsibilities are, are now, you know, changing significantly or, you know, and it's not only, you know, letting go of people is one thing. In some areas you want to think about reinvesting. So some places you say, Hey, I need more of this. Uh, so why don't I reallocate or give people an opportunity to move over? Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to do it very, very pragmatic. You cannot make it personal. You cannot judge anybody for any reason other than does the role fit? Uh, you know, you have to, obviously, if you have, um, people that are over performers, you're going to try and find a place where they fit in the new world order. Um, but it, it's in general, you know, you will lose some great people because there's just no opportunity for them and you just don't have the capital to keep them, um, you know, while you're going through that period of crisis. So that, that's difficult, you know, it's difficult, but as long as you try and keep emotion out of it and be very pragmatic, um, mm. honestly, it's usually quite clear how, how it needs to happen. And, and it's the, the hardest part is maybe how deep the cut needs to be. You know, if it's just a shallow cut, then that's actually not that difficult. It's just, mm. uh, something you can figure out. If it's a deep cut, then you know, you're going to have to give up on some things you, you know, you optimistically were hoping you could still do. And that's yeah. where it gets really, really hard. Um, in terms of delivering the message, I think there's a couple of key things. First of all, everyone's going to take a cue from you as the leader. So you have to present with empathy and with confidence. You know, empathy because everybody needs to know that you are actually feeling it. It's not just yeah. a cold decision. And confidence because people need to feel that you're still in control and you're still uh, driving for uh, you know light at the end of the tunnel and the positive mm-hmm. outcome. And so, um, you know, those are, those are really key. Uh, the decision in the process has to be swift. Uh, mm. last thing you ever want for a culture is to leave this lingering perspective that, oh, maybe I'm next, but you don't want people mm. to ever feel that way. So you got to be clear so, and so swift. Rather and, kind of decide once and then not going back yeah. and forth, like kind of not yeah. doing weights. Yeah. 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 Don't do double dips. And then be very clear with the people that stay that you are supporting them. You are behind them. They have a future, they have security. Um, you know, and by the way, here is a clear vision of how we're going to deal with this situation. And even if you don't have all the answers baked out, be very, very clear about what you do know and very transparent about the things you don't know. And, uh, and I think that level of honesty and empathy 
uh, really brings the team along with you and um, allows you to kind of uh, you know get that loyalty and that engagement and and that support as you you go through the challenges. Yeah, I think that's really really well um, yeah well versed and and a really good advice for everyone out there going through difficult decisions right now. I know a lot of businesses have gone for the first wave of that thinking. I think many more are uh, following and and we're still I think trying to all kind of adapt to the new situations. I think this week actually has been a big week of announcements of change roadmaps. And uh, there were many CEO letters to customers. Uh, I've definitely received a few from the tech companies that we are working with. Uh, I think it's an interesting, interesting time. And I definitely think we will yet see much more change that needs to happen over time. Thank you so much for sharing all these insights and, and really helping us as, uh, yeah, current leaders, operators uh, that have to make these tough choices, um, really um, go for it with guidance, with um, support and, and advice. Really, really appreciate the time uh, you took today and, and all the yeah, authentic, very honest insights, Carl. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I uh, look forward to doing it again. Super. Have a really good uh, rest of the day, everyone, and uh, hear you very, very soon. Uh, we'll drop a few links uh, that relate to the topic that you heard in the episode um, and a few frameworks that uh, Carl and I mentioned. I'm really, really looking forward to the next episode and stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let me know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find me on Instagram at Daria Gudnik and start a conversation there. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that my team and I are building an AI leadership coach to help you become a world-class leader in just two minutes a day. It's coming out very soon on the Apple App Store. If you want to get early access, though, head over to bunch.ai and simply sign up. And thanks again for listening. I'm your host. My name is Daria Gutnick. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Bunch. If you liked today's episode, make sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.